Good evening, church. Welcome to all of you. Peace be with you all. I invite you to open up your Bibles, if you have them, to Luke chapter 20. And today we're going to begin in verse 27, and we're going to continue through the end of the chapter uh, down to verse 47. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offsprings, offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. After, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the great condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for this privilege to gather together as your people to worship you with song, with prayer, with the reading of your word. And Father, we just pray, we just ask that your spirit would be among us, that you would open up our hearts to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus declared to us through your word. Father, may we worship you. May we worship you rightly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. If you've been with us for the past month, uh, we kind of, through this text, we cannot shake off this drama that Jesus finds himself in with the religious leaders. As we come to the end of our study through the Gospel of Luke, 
Uh, we're in the last days of Jesus' life. Next few weeks, we will look at Jesus' last warnings to his disciples as he warns them about the coming disaster on Jerusalem. And then we enter the last days of Jesus' life, his suffering. So we see, we see even through this text that Jesus is now very clearly telling his opponents that he is the Messiah and that he is the Son of God. He's very clear about this. He entered into Jerusalem as a king. He went into the temple with authority to cleanse it. And so the religious leaders are doing everything possible to shut Jesus down, coming up with all sorts of questions designed to entrap Jesus, trying to uh, discredit him before the people and to make him guilty before the government, if possible. For example, last week we saw how they came up with this brilliant question and asked him if it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. That question was meant to get him in trouble with Rome. Jesus skillfully, rightfully refuted, answered them. What's important for us to understand is that the events that unfold in chapter 19 and 20 become very key, become very important later on, especially in Luke chapter 23. In Luke chapter 23, Jesus is arrested. He is brought before the Sanhedrin, before the council. Um, And when they convict him, they convict him on the ground of blasphemy because Jesus claimed to be the Christ. He claimed to be the Messiah. Christ and Messiah are the same word. One is our word, English word, Latin word for um, Messiah, which is Christ, and Messiah is the Hebrew word. But they arrested him on the grounds that he claimed to be Christ, he claimed to be the Messiah, and that he claimed that he is the Son of God. And later on, when they bring Jesus before Pilate, the Roman governor, listen of what they accuse Jesus of before Pilate. If you would Flip a page over to Luke 23. Luke 23, beginning in verse 1. They bring Jesus before Pilate, and they begin to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Knowing what happened in chapter 20, is this a just accusation of Jesus? Did they represent Christ rightly to Pilate, the governor? They didn't. They're blatantly lying to Pilate. They're saying that Jesus is forbidding the nation to pay taxes to Caesar. This is a lie. Jesus never said that. And then they started saying that he claims to be the Messiah. He claims to be a king. We saw that through chapter 19 and 20, Jesus makes that clear about himself. That statement is true, but not in the way they put it. They put it in the context of this lie, don't pay taxes to Caesar, I instead will be your king. They twist the words of Jesus. But they don't care. They don't care about the fact that they are lying and twisting his words 
For them, they need Jesus gone, and they will do anything to get rid of him. And so today we have another exchange of question between uh, Jesus and the religious leaders. We read in verse 27, there came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question. Jesus had a lot of enemies. Uh, We met the Pharisees. They're the predominantly mentioned group of people who oppose Christ. Earlier in this chapter, we also met the priests. Uh, Last week, we saw the Herodians. And today, we have a new group of opponents called the Sadducees. You may be wondering who they are. This is the one and only time that these guys show up in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, But they, along with the Pharisees and the priests, they are the religious elites. These three groups formed something that is called the Sanhedrin, basically a high court or a supreme council. The Sanhedrin is the council that will ultimately arrest Jesus and convince Rome to kill him. The Sanhedrin is basically, uh, as an example, if you think of the U.S. Congress or the Supreme Court and all the parties that are represented there um, from all spheres of government. We have the Democrats, the Republicans, the Independent, the Greens, similar things going on here. We have Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, all of these guys, they come together. Um, and even across their differences and, and, and all their disagreements, they come together to, uh, to, to agree on some things. The Pharisees, they were the religious leaders. They were religious leaders because, and they belonged to the Sanhedrin because of their knowledge. They committed themselves to learning the law of God, and those who excelled in this became Pharisees. Compared to nowadays, it's someone who maybe finishes Harvard and goes on into politics. The Sadducees, on the other hand, would not get this power because of their knowledge or finishing some school. They were the wealthy Jews. They were the aristocrats. They had lots of money, and so they had lots of power. That's how they were there. And so they did not take the law of God as seriously as the Pharisees. Um, They mostly just held to Torah, to the Torah, and that is it. That's why when Jesus answers them, he answers them out of the Torah, because that that is an authority to them. And so again, the Pharisees and the Sadducees disagreed a lot, but they had to work together because um, they were the parties that were approved by Rome. Rome kind of liked the fact that they disagreed. That kept them all in check. And even though the Pharisees and the Sadducees at some level despised Rome, they were interested in keeping the status quo because the status quo kept them in power. And Jesus threatened their power. He threatened the status quo. And that's why across their differences, they unite and they are working together to get rid of Christ. And so one of the things that the Pharisees and the Sadducees disagree on is the afterlife. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in it so much so that that became the the, the little tagline. That's what they were known for. The guys who do not believe in the resurrection. And so they come to Jesus, and they ask him a question about the resurrection. 
These guys believed that humans did not go into any kind of afterlife. They just simply ceased to exist. And so they come to Jesus, and they're trying to make a case that the resurrection makes no sense. They say, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but having a wife but no children, that that man must take the widow and raise up offspring for her brother. They quote the law of Moses. This is very true. There is a law like this. And based on this law, they then go to tell Jesus this scenario that they made up. So we read this story, their made-up story. Verse 29, now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took, took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. And here's the question. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. This woman marries one by one, seven of the brothers. They all die. After the third death, I would be very suspicious of this woman. What is she putting in that tea? Anyways, after the resurrection, I mean, it's going to be kind of awkward. Seven guys walking around her, all brothers, all had her as, her, as, as their wife. And so the question is, whose wife will she actually be? And Jesus says to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and, be, and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Jesus basically tells them she will not be a wife to any of them. Neither one of the seven will have uh, her as their wife. Because after the resurrection, if you are worthy to be a part of that resurrection marriage, husbands, wives, it will cease to exist. It will be no more. Growing up, this was my least favorite teaching of Jesus. It made me really sad when I found out that my mom and dad are not going to be married in heaven. Uh, and later it hit me, wait a minute, if there's no marriage in heaven, I'd better get married quickly. Because if Christ comes, I'm going to miss out big time. <laughs> Probably part of the reason I was married by 20. And I made a resolution. If I can't be married to my wife in, in heaven, I, in heaven I, I intend to be her best friend out there. And so as Jesus answers their question, he obviously simultaneously raises a whole slew of other questions for us. He opens up a Pandora's box of questions that all of us have. Will we still be a family in heaven? Will we know each other? 
what age will I be? Will it be the age I died, or it will be the age I felt and looked best? Will infants be infants? So many questions. So many questions about the life after death and the life in the resurrection. And God is completely silent on most of these questions. The scriptures is silent. We can speculate, but we just do not know. And here's what we do know. Whatever it will be, life after the resurrection will be far better than anything we can ever experience here. It will be far better than even the best marriage on earth. It will be better than anything we could ever imagine. And so Jesus answers your question. After telling the Sadducees that their supposed scenario makes no sense, he goes on to tell them, Jesus makes an argument for the resurrection to them. He says, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And so Jesus tells them, as a matter of fact, the dead are raised. And if they were not, if we just cease to exist, if we're just gone, poof, we're, we're, we're gone, why would God call himself a God of Abraham, a God of Isaac, a God of Jacob, all men who have died. Why would God be the God of the dead? And Jesus says this because he says God would not do this unless they were alive, unless they existed, and unless they would resurrect. And so some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. Even the opponents of Christ Hearing the answer to the Sadducees, the scribes who had an opposing view with the Sadducees, they had to praise Jesus for his answer to them. But next, as Jesus answers their question, he in turn asks them a question. And this is a provoking question. Jesus is continuing to push the envelope. The time of Christ has come to, the, to an end. And he knows that by asking these questions and by making these statements, this will ultimately lead to his death. This is going to enrage the religious leaders more and more. He knows that he is lifting up the temperature on that thermostat. He knows what he's doing. And so he asks them a question. We'll get to the question in a second. Um, the reason why these questions, why, why, why this is so, uh, was a, why these statements of Christ were so offensive to the Jews and to the religious leaders, Jesus' statement that he is the Son of God and that he is Christ, that he is the Messiah, the reason why these statements were so offensive to them 
is because at large, the Jews did not believe in a triune God. They said, God said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Through God's revelation, we as Christians, we know, we see, we believe that there is only one God. Yet this one God exists in three persons as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For the Jew, it is not so. They do not believe in the Trinity. They believe there is only one person in the Godhead, and that is God the Father. And any notion, any notion of a triune God, or even a second person within the Godhead to them is pagan, it is blasphemous. They do not believe that the Messiah will be the Son of God. They do not believe that the Messiah will have a divine nature. For them, the Messiah will simply be a man chosen by God to be their Savior, just as all the other prophets who came before in the Spirit of God. Only the Messiah will be filled with the Spirit even greater. They did not believe that the Messiah will be the Son of God. And so Jesus comes along and he is making these two statements that he is the Messiah, which fits the Jewish worldview. But it's the second part that really trips them up, his claim that he is the Son of God, that he is divine. And the second claim to them proves the fact that he is not the true Messiah. And as we read through the Gospels, we see that all throughout Jesus' ministry, his identity as the Son of God becomes the litmus test of the true believers. That is why Peter's confession becomes so important. When Jesus asks them in Matthew 16, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. For us, it might be like just, okay, yeah, it's a cool Christian statement. This was a radical statement to a culture that did not believe in a triune God. For someone to say that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and as the Messiah, he is the son of the living God. To make that statement, it had to be only revealed from the Father. This is the most important confession that someone can make, confessing that they believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that he is the Son of God. So important is this fact that even on the two occasions when the Father spoke Jesus' baptism and on the Mount Transfiguration, this is what he proclaimed. This is what he underlined. This is my beloved Son. And so Jesus, through this question, tries to show the religious leaders scripturally, biblically, he's trying to show the religious leaders that the Messiah will not just be a man, but he will also be the Son of God, that he will be divine. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 22, 42, Jesus begins this question that we have in Luke 
by asking them a question before that. He, he asks them this. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Where is he going to come from? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. So all the Jews, they knew that the Messiah will be the son of David. He'll be a descendant of David. He will be from the tribe of Judah, from the root of Jesse. Every Jew believed this, and they waited for this Messiah to come. David was the greatest king. Messiah will come from his line to become king and to reign on David's throne this time forever. And so Jesus throws them a curveball. Of course, Jesus knew and he believed that he is a descendant of David, that he is the son of David, but he is trying to show them that he is much more than just a descendant of David. Verse 41 of Luke, we finally get to the question. He says to them, imagine now, the Jews, they believe that the Messiah will come from David, that the Messiah will not be the Son of God. He is not divine. Now, this is what Jesus asks them. How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? David calls the coming Messiah his Lord. Someone who is over him, someone who is greater than him. So how can he be his son? Jesus is quoting here Psalm of David, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is actually the number one Old Testament referenced by the New Testament. It's the number one quoted text out of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Psalm 110 is a prophetic psalm. David, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is listening in on a conversation that is happening in heaven. And David tells us through this psalm what he hears. And here's what he hears. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We might not see anything special here, but when we translate these two lords, here's what we get, here's what we see. The first lord, it's different from the second lord. Your Bible might have uh, all the four letters of the first Lord capitalized. This is God's name, Yahweh. It's the holiest, most revered name of God. It is so holy that the 
Jewish people would not dare to pronounce it. In the Hebrew, we only have the consonant letters. Y-H-W-H. So even today, we're, we're only guessing on the pronunciation of, 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 of these letters. We have two versions. It may, be, it may be Jehovah. It may be Yahweh. But we do not know exactly what it is, how it's pronounced. But it is the holiest name of God. So the first Lord in Psalm 110 is Yahweh. The second Lord, though, is Adonai. This, this name refers to God as the most supreme, the sovereign one. It's the highest title, the greatest name anyone could ever receive. There is no higher name than Adonai. There's no one greater than Adonai. He is the most supreme He is the most sovereign. It's the greatest and highest title. And so many of the Psalms refer to God by both of these names. For example, Psalm 8, verse 1, we read, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Two lords here are Yahweh and Adonai. O Yahweh, our Adonai. How majestic is your name in all the earth. But here in Psalm 110, something different is happening. Jesus is underlining the fact that Yahweh and Adonai are not just one person, but they are speaking to each other. They're talking to each other. Yahweh says to my Adonai, Two of the greatest names for God. They're speaking to each other. And Yahweh tells Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So again, Jesus' question is, how can David's son also be his Adonai? David's son is not just Lord, but he is Lord of Lords. He is most supreme. He is the sovereign one. He's not just a little greater than David. He is the greatest being in all of creation. And Jesus asks them, how can this be? Here's what Jesus is getting at. Here's what he is telling them. Adonai is the greatest title one could have. David's son has this title, and this is proof that he is much more than just David's descendant. He is also the eternal, the divine son of God. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that they were not able to answer him. The Jews knew that the Messiah would be the son of God. Jesus is showing them that the Messiah will not only be the son of Sorry, the Messiah will be the son of David. Jesus is showing them that the Messiah will not just be the son of David, but he will also be the son of God. Even though the religious leaders did not know what to answer, and they left him, the next time they meet, the next time they will talk again, 
will be after they arrest him. And believe it or not, they will pick up right where they left off. They will demand he gets crucified because he dared to call himself Adonai, the name that belongs to God alone. In Philippians 2, we see why Jesus gets to have this title. We get to see why Jesus gets to have the name that is above every name. Verse 5, we read, Paul says, Have this mind also among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Adonai, to the glory of God the Father. What will every tongue confess? What is the name above every name? That Jesus Christ is Adonai that he is Lord over all, that he is sovereign, that he is supreme, that there is no one greater than him. That is the name that the Father has given Christ. No wonder, Psalm 110, no wonder this reality of Christ seated at the right hand of the Father until his enemies are made Christ's footstool is the most quoted text in the New Testament. It is a powerful picture. A picture of Christ's power, of his dominion, of his victory. It's a promise that Christ will defeat every last one of his enemies. And I just want to quote a few, a few of these uh, texts in the New Testament that quote Psalm 110. We see this amazing image in Peter's first sermon. The church is born, the first sermon, and right there in the middle of that sermon, Peter quotes Psalm 110. Acts 2.34, Peter says, For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord, Adonai, and Christ, the Messiah. The two things that Jesus kept constantly claiming who he is, that he is the Son of God and that he is the Messiah. Peter says, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified, the rejected stone, 
has become the cornerstone. In 1 Corinthians 15, 25, as Paul tells us of the promise that death will be defeated, he says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Hebrews 1.13, talking about the greatness of Jesus, we read, into which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Just think of this picture. You know, if, if, if you sit on a chair and someone is made to become your footstool, that's a, that's a place of shame. It's a place of dishonor. That's a place of weakness. And God promises that all of Christ's enemies will be in that position under the heels of Christ. As Christ sits on his throne, his enemies will be under his feet. He will rest his legs on them. And finally, Hebrews 10, 12 through 13, we read, But when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, Here it is again. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And these are just the most explicit references to Psalm 110. Hebrews has, I believe it's Hebrews chapter 7, is almost a full chapter devoted to Psalm 110. Church, right now, At this very hour, God is actively at work making all of Christ's enemies his footstool. That's what he was doing for the past 2,000 years, and this is what he will continue to do until they are all under Christ's feet. This is a reality happening right now. It's a powerful picture. And as the first church had this on the tip of their tongue, we also must understand and see this great vision and reality of Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. And this picture should bring us much comfort and it should put some of us to terror. Comfort if you are a friend of Christ. Because his enemies are also our enemies, your enemies. And Christ will not relent until his and your enemies are defeated, finally. And this should also bring terror to you if you are an enemy of Christ. Because you are actively in enmity with God right now. He is working against you and the promise is that he will win. And so if you are an enemy of Christ, you will lose. So the call is to submit to Christ. Find refuge in Jesus and his power and his strength. You can find rest And so the the question to all of us is, do you believe, unlike those Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees, 
Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Son of God? Do you believe that he deserves the name above all names? Do you call him, do you worship him as Adonai? Do you worship him as the one who is supreme and sovereign over all? And not just in theory, not just supreme and sovereign over all somewhere out there in the world, but supreme and sovereign over your life. Do you submit to him every single area of your life? Is he your Lord? Jesus has finished his conversation, his conversation with the religious leaders. He finishes with the warning to all the people to be aware, to beware of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Again, Jesus is questioning their status quo. Jesus is questioning, he is dismantling their power, and they hate this. They hate the fact that he is calling them out. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Why does Jesus warn people of the Pharisees? Because they are hypocrites. Because what they portray is not real. It is not true. They demand honor. They demand respect. They present themselves as pious and so knowledgeable of God and all of his ways. Yet they have denied God. They are actively seeking to kill Christ, to kill God in the flesh. And great is their condemnation. And so again, do you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? Is your worship of him only outward, like these Pharisees? Or do you submit to him in all areas of your life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing, beautiful image of Christ, his power, his dominion. Father, we thank you that you are actively working right now to put all of the enemies of Christ under his feet. And in so doing, Lord, you are working actively to put all of our enemies under his feet. Father, we thank you for the promise that even death will be destroyed, that it will be not a threat to us no more, that we will resurrect to be eternally with you forever, enjoying your glory and your presence. Father, we thank you for all of these promises that your word gives to us today. I pray, Lord, that we would cling to your word, that we would take these words as rocks, in the building that you are building, Father, and place them there, that we would believe your word, Father. And Lord, those who do not know you, those who are still in enmity with you, those who are at war with you, Father, I pray that this image of Christ would drive them to repentance, would drive them into your arms, Lord, where they can find safety, 
forgiveness and refuge in you, Jesus. Father, may we as a church, Lord, worship you rightly. May Lord, you not just be Lord on our lips, but may we worship you with all of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.